Our scripture reading on this Easter Sunday is going to begin in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to go back just a little bit to the burial of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 57 and we'll read through the resurrection account in Matthew chapter 28 through verse 10. Before we read the word of the Lord, let us turn to God in prayer, asking God to bless the reading of his holy and errant infallible word. Let's pray together. O God of life, by your spirit you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. By your spirit you inspired the prophets and writers of scripture By your spirit, you draw us to Christ and help us to acknowledge him in faith as Lord and Savior. By your spirit, you give us life in him. So we ask now that you would send us your spirit to give us deeper insight, encouragement, faith, hope, love, and joy through the proclamation of the Easter gospel. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there 
they will see me. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are left on the evening of Jesus' death with a very vivid image. Matthew's gospel has Mary Magdalene and the one described as the other Mary, almost certainly referring to Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, sitting opposite the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea had just left John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus was with Joseph, having helped him prepare Jesus' body for the tomb. After they had wrapped his body in the linen burial cloths with the 75 pounds of spices, myrrh, and aloe, they had rolled the stone in front of the tomb and departed. But the Marys remained. And we aren't told why they were there, although this was the burial of a man whom they dearly loved, Jesus's graveside service, as it were, not very well attended. And perhaps they wanted to make sure they knew where Jesus was being buried in order that they might come back after the Sabbath day to anoint his body more fully, whatever the reason. It does place him in a position to have witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial. These women, more than anyone else, knew that their friend was dead. The 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel tells us that these very same women would be witnesses even before the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. This is significant. But the fact that they had been there with Jesus through this whole ordeal speaks to their devotion, their faithfulness. They were the ones who never left Jesus' side. And can we imagine what they were feeling sitting there in that moment? They had to have been in complete shock and disbelief. In less than 24 hours, this man whom they love had been executed as a criminal after an illegitimate arrest and trial. Jesus had been arrested under the cover of darkness with no definite charge, and those who had ordered his arrest couldn't find any reliable witnesses to prosecute him. The civil judges, Pilate and Herod, had both declared him to be innocent. It is, after all, hard to find a sinless man guilty of anything. And yet, and yet his own people had demanded his death, so a prisoner swap had occurred, Jesus for Barabbas, a man who was guilty of insurrection and murder. And so Barabbas went free, while the one who knew no sin was beaten and hung on a cross. And as he hung there, bruised and bloody, naked and dying, he was mocked. These are the last human voices he heard before he breathed his last breath, berating him because they mistakenly believed he was calling upon Elijah to come and rescue him or vindicate him as the promised Messiah. 
the women had witnessed all of this. They had witnessed his horrific, unjust suffering and death, and now here they were. As whatever remained of the day's last light faded into darkness, watching as his dead body was given a minimal preparation for burial. And as the tomb was secured with a large stone, it's, it's a very somber moment that Matthew recalls for us. And what a poignant image Matthew presents to us as the scene closes on that day that we call Good Friday. Darkness was setting in. These women sat staring at the tomb, looking into the face of death. That's what they were doing. They were facing that great mystery, the great enemy of humankind, death especially piercing because it was their beloved friend who they thought was the Messiah, the promised one. And what was there to do before the grave but to feel totally helpless and defeated? The grave, after all, does not release its captives. So I think we can rightly assume that what they were experiencing in that moment was utter dismay, despair, depression. Their physical posture says everything. Matthew tells us that they were seated. This is the posture of grief. We see this in other places in scripture, like after Job loses almost everything he loved and had worked for. Scripture tells us that his friends came to offer their support, and they found Job sitting there on the ground. And Job chapter 2 says this, and they sat with him on the ground. Seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. This is the scene Matthew leaves us with on that Friday, the women sitting in their grief. And it isn't just grief, it is hopeless grief. Their friend was dead, expired, gone. Were the women anticipating something redemptive to come from the death of their beloved friend? Nothing in the gospel accounts gives any indication that they were. The disciples were in hiding. The women were sitting mourning before a closed tomb that contained their beloved friend. The picture that is painted by the gospel writers is that any hopes the followers of Jesus had for him and who he was were crushed at Calvary. And we know this sort of response to death, don't we? It is ever-present in the world around us. And if we haven't been somewhat regularly reminded of the gaping hole that death leaves by experience within our personal circles, then the daily news provides plenty of examples. The death of celebrities... Untimely deaths that occur by way of violence, tragic deaths caused by illness and accident, constantly reported to us. Death is all around. And as much as everyone tries to avoid and evade this great enemy, as hard as people try to ignore its horrifying reality, sooner or later it comes and it hits close to home. And we can read the outpouring of grief 
to those notable deaths in our community and in the world, social media has allowed us to see the sort of sorrow expressed in the face of death. But beyond the sincerest sympathies, the sweetest memories shared, the most extraordinary eulogies there is, well, what is there? Oftentimes, there is unadulterated despair, hopeless grief. People are left with nothing but memories and shattered dreams of what will never be. Sometimes you have to read between the lines, but it's there, the recognition of the finality of death. Sometimes it's acknowledged, sometimes it's only alluded to, but it's there. Death brings a decisive end a decisive end to the plans of man, a decisive end to our relationships, a decisive end to existence as we know it. And this certainly gets intensified if the deceased was young and if the death was unexpected because then it feels as though something that wasn't supposed to happen has happened. But this is the case anyhow, isn't it? Death is always an unwelcomed intruder when it comes seemingly so unnatural we sense we have the sense that death is out of place a reality out of line with the intention of creation but as the saying goes in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes tax day is tomorrow And it doesn't matter how accomplished the person was, how generous, how kind, how loving the deceased is gone. And the question is, gone where? This is a fearful question, isn't it? Simply into the ground to rot and decay. To some sort of afterlife, soul ripped from the body. To stand accountable before some God. It is a fearful thing. And if there is to be any hope, it has to rest on something, an objective truth, an objective reality. Otherwise, it is simply a wish, a dream of what may come that is only imagined. And this becomes very obvious when people try to comfort others in their grief. Often people are simply left saying things like, I'm thinking about you. And that isn't a bad thing to say if you are saying it to express support and solidarity with someone in their mourning. But this phrase gets uttered by the secular world to avoid saying, I'm praying for you. And offering a true word of comfort based on a firm hope. Because the secular world doesn't believe in prayer or want to acknowledge that what a grieving person really needs is the presence and power of God, a God of life. But it's a God whom they deny. Or the new one is this. I'm sending positive vibes your way. What does that mean? Really, what does that mean? Does this imply 
that one can send some sort of good energy in another's direction that will somehow produce a positive effect in their life? Is there some sort of cosmic energy like the force of Star Wars that one can tap into and share with others? What does it mean? I'll tell you what expressions like this are. They are demonstrations of the bankrupt philosophies of the day, which dream of no heaven or hell, or perhaps imagine a universal paradise that's available to all simply by dying. But here's the reality. There is no power in these sort of sentiments. And you know it, and I know it. They have no power to bring healing, no power to bring any real comfort, no power to provide any real hope. But beyond providing company in misery, all that the world has to offer are empty platitudes spoken by those who find themselves utterly helpless, powerless in the face of the fearful reality of death. These are niceties spoken by someone who wants to do something, who wants to offer a word of encouragement, but can't. And and I don't intend to demean anyone. I'm merely stating the sad reality of the hopelessness that exists outside of Jesus Christ. And I think that these women who made their way to Jesus' grave on that first day of the week had a very deep sense of the finality of death. The scene is still heavy with their grief. They come expecting to find death. One does not go to a tomb looking for anything else. And there's nothing that they can do at that point but to honor their friend by anointing his dead body. Otherwise, they're helpless, powerless. And without any expectation that this death would be any different than any other, their friend is gone. Gone where? Some great unknown. So we can imagine their surprise and their confusion when they arrive to find an open tomb. The stone rolled away, an angel sitting on top, and the first words that the angel speaks to them are the familiar first words of other angelic messengers in scriptures. Do not fear. The presence of the angels often invokes fear. They are, after all, powerful beings who come as representatives of a holy God, shining forth the glory of the one in whose presence they dwell. And Matthew tells us that this angel looked like lightning with clothes as white as snow. Fear is an appropriate response in the presence of such a being. Even the guards, Matthew tells us, trembled and fainted as dead on account of finding themselves in the presence of this angel. These were battle-hardened soldiers, and they were terrified at the sight of the heavenly being. So it would be natural for the women to tremble before the angel as well. But I have to wonder if this is what Matthew's communicating to us here. Perhaps it strikes us that there is no mention of the women's response to the angel. Matthew does not tell us that the women saw the angel and trembled. No, Matthew simply relays what the angel spoke to them. Do not be afraid. 
For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And perhaps what is truly terrifying to these women was the prospect of finding exactly what they came looking for, death. The body of a friend laying lifeless in a cold, dark tomb. This is our greatest fear, isn't it? Death, the sum of all fears. Our greatest enemy. Perhaps what was terrifying was coming to that grave and finding its mouth wide open, ready to swallow up its next victim into the abyss of the unknown. But what does the angel say next? He is not here, for he is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. The angel announces to them, you will not find death here. Come on into the tomb. See for yourselves, Jesus has defeated death. The grave could not hold him. And this makes the fact that the religious leaders tried to contain him laughable. This is what they spent their Sabbath day doing. The rest The day of rest was spent trying to contain a dead Jesus who was simultaneously at work securing our eternal rest. It didn't matter how the tomb was secured, though. There was no stone big enough. There was no seal strong enough. There were no centurions armed enough. They could make it as secure as humanly possible as Pilate instructed them. It wasn't enough. But on a side note, it does make all the more ridiculous the assertion that they would later claim that the disciples had come in the night and stolen the body of Jesus. (laughs) Right. The disciples who had fled in fear and were in hiding somehow mustered the courage to come face and subdue armed guards, break into the sealed tomb, roll away the stone, all to steal the body of Jesus in order to claim that he had risen from the dead. This isn't even remotely believable. Nor is it believable that they would all go to their deaths. Not only protecting, but promoting a lie. Anyhow, we must also consider the reality that human strength has nothing on the power of death. No matter how hard we might try, death will not be subdued by human strength. When death comes, there is no escape. There is nothing stronger than death. But the message of Easter morning was that even the power of death could not hold Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life. And by the way, just in case you didn't catch this, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out of the tomb. He didn't need any help in that regard. It was rolled away to let the women in. Come, come and see. This is the Easter invitation. Come and see, he is not here, he is risen. And it's these words that give credence to the command not to fear. 
It's the reality of finding an open and empty tomb that once contained the crucified dead body of Jesus, but now only contains his grave clothes. Matthew wants us to see this with abundant clarity. So the angel tells the women not to fear, but more importantly, as the women obey the angel's instruction to go and tell the disciples, which by the way is a sure sign of their faith in the angel's message of good news, who do they meet along the way? But Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And what are his first words he speaks to them after greeting them? Verse 10, chapter 28. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Spoken by the one who had risen victorious from the grave. Death has been conquered. The women were looking at him with their own eyes. They were touching his feet as they bowed and worshipped him. The one who is fully God and yet fully man who submitted himself to death that he might defeat it and who stood risen from the dead in his glorious resurrection body and the implications of that reality are great as the apostle paul says jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And because we need to be constantly reminded that there is no longer any need to fear death, that Jesus has gone ahead of us into the grave and has defeated death for us, we find the same message repeated in Scripture. This is the message that the resurrected Lord Jesus speaks to his beloved Disciple John in his revelation to him, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. Behold, I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. This is what gives the Apostle Paul the boldness to taunt death. This is what he's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where is your victory, O oh, death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Easter message is one of victory over death by our conquering risen king. So do you understand? Do you understand? The grave, while still mysterious to us, is no longer a place to be feared. For if death has been defeated, then there is no longer reason to fear it. Rather, the grave is, as Charles Spurgeon described it, none other than the gate of heaven. A sacred place, deeply solemn and sanctified by the slain body of our precious Savior. Because Jesus has gone ahead of us first into death and has risen from the dead, we can have confidence in going there ourselves. Jesus not only provided us assurance of the forgiveness of our sins before the judgment seat of God through his atoning death on a cross, he's also provided assurance that death has been defeated through his victorious resurrection. Jesus provided this assurance to his followers even before his crucifixion. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. His resurrection from the dead vindicates his claim of his identity. Death has no power over the Lord of life and to those who belong to him. And what we find is that the resurrection and life are not only embodied in Jesus, they can be discovered, experienced, and enjoyed by all those who are in relation to him through faith. It's through belief in him who is the resurrection and the life that one gains access to this blessed reality. The grave then becomes but an entrance into everlasting life in his presence for those who believe. It is a doorway through which we find ourselves at the gate of paradise. Without a resurrected Christ, though, there is no victory. And without faith, we remain removed from Christ and therefore removed from the hope of eternal life in his presence. If we are to have hope, then it must rest firmly in the reality of Jesus's resurrection. As the apostle Paul states, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We have no hope. We have no basis to believe or expect anything good beyond this life. But there also remains only hopeless grief if Christ has been raised and we have not placed our faith in him. This is what Matthew reveals to us here in these verses. He shows us the darkness of death and the hopelessness that exists in the face of death without the resurrection of Jesus. But against the backdrop of this darkness is Easter morning and the darkness serves to show us how all the more glorious the resurrection is and what it accomplishes for us. Matthew is clear that with the dawning of the first day came the dawn of hope. The enveloping darkness of that Friday evening gave way to the sunshine of a new day. Indeed, that day became a new period in history. And in this new day, death has been defeated. It hasn't yet been eliminated, but it has been defeated and its ultimate end has been set. And this means that grief isn't yet eradicated, but it is transformed. You see, it isn't wrong to grieve the loss of someone whom you dearly love. Grief is a natural thing to experience on account of the separation that death causes in this fallen creation. And scripture provides us with examples of godly grief. The issue isn't whether we grieve, but how we grieve. The issue is whether our grieving contains hope and where that hope rests. We see hopeless grief in the women sitting before the grave at the close of the day Friday, but the resurrection changes how we approach death while we await its final destruction. The Apostle Paul is very clear about this. He states in his first letter to the Thessalonians chapter 4, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We still grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope. And Paul tells the Thessalonians to encourage each other in that hope. It's the blessed hope to which the apostle Peter writes when he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus has secured the inheritance for all who believe upon him. It is an inheritance he has won through his death and resurrection. And this inheritance is guarded for believers by God himself. This inheritance is eternity in his presence, lived in a new creation with all those who belong to Christ where there is fullness of joy and peace. This inheritance is a resurrection body like his that is no longer susceptible to sickness, death, or decay and is incapable of sin. And in the new creation, there will be no more mourning and pain. This is the Christian hope made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our only hope. So we are to come and see the empty tomb, see where Jesus lay. Dearly beloved, Christ is risen. Let's live like it. Let's live like it. And if you haven't done so, place your faith in Jesus Christ that you might be filled with his resurrection power in the here and now, a foretaste, a foretaste of that for which we hope, eternal life in the presence of our Lord Jesus, the lamb who was slain for us and for our salvation, where there is everlasting joy, peace, and righteousness. Come, live in the light of this new day. Feel the warmth of the sun's rays and experience the joy that this new morning brings. Don't delay. Don't dawdle in the darkness any longer, a slave to sin and dreading death. Stop pretending that death won't come for you and that you won't stand accountable to God. Place your faith in Jesus Christ who died in your place and defeated death that you might not feel its sting. Put on his righteousness. Put on his righteousness and follow him in faithful obedience that you may receive the promised, the blessed hope of eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this day for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We praise you for his victory over death, for conquering death. We praise you that because he lives, we who have faith too shall live this day and forevermore. 
Help us to live in the hope and joy and peace of the resurrection. Grant that we may live in its power and thus give faithful witness that Jesus Christ is alive, risen from the dead, and reigning at your right hand. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was 